This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. And we are taking the pulse of the mining industry in this episode. I try and keep it as general as I can in this podcast. I like to appeal to as many people as possible. I don't come from a mining background originally, so I like to always try and make things accessible, really in whatever I do. However, this one is a, I don't want to say it's for the specialists because I think everybody, it's actually pretty simple, basic information, but the people in the industry, I think, will particularly find this episode useful. Because what we have, we have two things. We have Eric Buckland, who is our feature content for this episode. I interviewed Eric maybe six months ago. I can't remember if it was pre or, or after COVID. I think it might have been in February. So it's just as it was coming on. And we're going to check in back with Eric. And it's very interesting what he's saying. He says it's booming out there that this industry, if you are looking for a job, you can get one. If you're half trained in this industry and you can't get a job, it's because you don't want one. <laughs> so as he says, it's one of these boom and bust industries and right now it's booming. So good news for anybody who's involved or for potential geology students. People talk about how people have been shortchanged, especially students, by the whole COVID situation. But maybe if you're a geologist, maybe you're actually going to be really well set up at least for the next couple, two or three years, we never know what happens in this world. So anyway, so that is coming up. And we also have a, a really big survey, and I think it was done by the Canadian Mining Journal, which is a sister publication at Glacier here. And Alicia Hyatt wrote up this piece detailing all the details of this survey. So we're going to take a look at that as well. So we're really taking the pulse here in a way that I can't think of any other a podcast or publication is doing right now. You are getting the 2020, September 22nd, first day of fall, pulse of the industry. So welcome. I hope you enjoy it. And I think it's going to be good. Uh, the information is quite interesting. So now Alicia's survey, it, it's dealing more with the COVID uh, fallout and how organizations have responded. They break it down by jurisdiction and by, you know, kinds of services that are provided whether you're a consultant, an explorer, et cetera, how you fit into that pie that is the mining sector. So that is coming up as well. We have some videos from GMS, from the Global Mining Symposium, that have been posted. If you want to see them for yourself, simply go to northernminer.com, click on Events and 2020 Global Mining Symposium, and click on Recordings, and you will get all the recordings. I am going to start dripping these out as soon as tomorrow. And we had some really good speakers. And again, what I like about what the Northern Miner is doing as a team, they're really forcing their way into the mining conversation in a way that is just getting hard to ignore. We're doing a lot of things that are just hard to ignore. And I'd argue this episode, it's just getting harder and harder. You kind of have to, it's must listen. If you, you know, especially for the executives, the executives, their job is to be on top of all these bigger issues and what's going on in the wider world. They're not worried about whether the forklift is working or not, although they may be on a certain level, but they are concerned about what the bigger picture is, and that's their job to be on top of that. So without further ado, 
If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. And you can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. And you can also find us on YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify and Stitcher. And with that, let's turn to Gord Sosinski with our next Petro-Canada Lubricants Mining Minute. Joining me now is Gord Sosinski, Senior Technical Services Advisor for Petro-Canada Lubricants. And Gord, people have a lot of different machines on their mine site, whether it's oil sands or a mining operation. How can equipment operators and managers begin to consolidate their lubricants and not have a million different lubricants that they need? That's a great question. Consolidating lubricants can be a very worthwhile exercise to help streamline a mine's lubricant list. However, if you're consolidating by yourself without expert advice, you could put your equipment at risk. And if you've not done it before, it can be a bit intimidating. The technology and equipment and in lubricants themselves change very quickly. And if you're not up to date on that technology, you could inadvertently cause damage to the equipment. So consolidating is a little bit like a teeter-totter. The more lubricants you have, the less risk you're going to assume. The less lubricants you have, the more risk you are going to assume. So at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is find the balance between the number of lubricants that you have in your shop and the amount of risk you're willing to assume. And at the end of the day, we're not going to do anything that's going to put the equipment at risk. And what we try to do is find a balance in that risk versus reward kind of thing. So when you get off on this journey to try and consolidate the lubricants, you have to understand the benefits and your consequences. Understand what is your end goal. So every position in the mine has a different end goal and they don't necessarily agree with each other all the time. So we need to understand what's motivating the decision to consolidate. You need to understand also the equipment requirements like gear reducers, for example, worm drives and in stationary equipment uh, conveyors with internal backstops have very specific requirements. So understand the OEM requirements. Product properties are important, like viscosity and chemistry, for example. There are some OEMs out there that require a minimum requirement of zinc, and there are other manufacturers that don't want any zinc used in their equipment at all. So when the team at Petro-Canada Lubricants do a lube survey or lube chart, for example, product consolidation is something we routinely do at the same time. And we ask a lot of questions such as, why do you do that that way? The reality is status quo is a killer. And we've seen it all the time when we ask the question, why do you do it that way? The answer is, well, it's always been done that way. So when you think you want to consolidate your products, contact your oil supplier and begin the process with them, and they will help guide you through the consolidation effort. Great. And is there quite a cost savings? Is is this more than convenience? Is there quite a cost saving involved with consolidating your lubricants? There can be. And when you talk about purchasing, for example, if, if you're purchasing more lubricants and different package sizes and and different types, you're using up wear space and there's a cost associated with that wear space. There's a cost associated with cutting additional POs. There's a cost associated with moving drums versus bulk requirements. And that's all part and parcel of that consolidation effort. So at the end of the day, you can consolidate and see significant savings at the end of the day. Right, and it's, it's sort of like simplify your life consolidate your lubricants. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, great. Thank you, Gord. Uh, Another fascinating mining minute, and we will see you next week. 
And if you want to learn more, simply go to our show notes where you'll find all the links for Petro-Canada Lubricants website and for more information about Gord Sosinski and what he's up to. Thanks again to Petro-Canada Lubricants for sponsoring the show. And we will hear again from them next week on our next Mining Minute. Now, turning to the website, let's start with this survey. The Northern Miner and the Canadian Mining Journal conducted a reader survey to gauge how the sector is faring through the COVID-19 pandemic. This is by Alicia Hyatt, who is editor-in-chief of the Canadian Mining Journal. Let's take a look at the details here. They got quite a few people. The survey was open in July and August with 384 people from the sector taking time to respond to a combination of multiple choice and open-ended questions. Respondents represented principally mining and exploration companies, suppliers to the industry, and consultants, with a smattering of respondents who identified as investors or as being part of financial institutions, governments, or NGOs. It sounds like there is a wide range of views from the optimistic, with a quote, we believe that the situation has been handled very well and we are stronger for it to others that are saying they are, quote, just scraping by. So I'm going to skip around a bit. I encourage you all to look at this closer, especially I think this is just like a must read piece for any executive, because again, I mean, COVID is at top of mind for this industry but it's still, you know, we get sort of coronavirus fatigue, but you can't afford to have that fatigue if you're a mining executive because you got to keep your mine in tip-top shape. So this is a, a great way. Otherwise, it could cost you millions and millions of dollars and shares go down and all of it. So the stakes are high. This is going to be a window, a shining a light on how it's going for other people. So... First, we're going to look at some of the initial insights. There's a high confidence in leadership across the board. Respondents indicate that their organizations were doing well in terms of dealing with the crisis so far, while only 59% of respondents indicated their organization had a business continuity plan in place to deal with business disruptions when the pandemic struck. Most rated their organization's contingency planning efforts since the start of the crisis as highly effective, with 68% of respondents rating them as good or very good, and only 4.4% rating them as poor. It's pretty good that 59% of businesses, according to respondents' answers, had a business continuity plan for business disruption. Also, it sounds like there is high confidence in many organizations' leadership to make the right decisions through the crisis, with 49% of respondents indicating that they were very confident in their leadership and 28% indicating they are extremely confident. That is impressive because these things, people don't need to, like nobody's forcing anybody, <laughs> nobody's looking over their shoulder to see what these people are, are answering here. Respondents scored their organizations especially high in terms of their effectiveness in addressing safety concerns, with 43% ranking the responses very good and 35% as excellent, and less than 1% ranking the response as poor. Less than 1% ranked their organization's response to the pandemic as poor. Wow. At the time of answering the survey, the majority of respondents, 54%, were still working from home. Very interesting, right? 54%. So this is in July, August, with 17% indicating a hybrid work week, including working from home and some time in the office. 25% of respondents said they were already back in the office, and 20% indicated they were still working in the field. About 11% indicated that they personally 
were working reduced hours with 6% laid off or furloughed. And I'd encourage those people who are laid off or furloughed to talk to Eric Buckland at the end of this episode because he might be able to help you. Uh, Continuing on, asked what their organizations are doing well through the crisis. The answers were a mix of communication, safety measures such as screening and testing, operational performance, as well as adapting to the new work-from-home reality. Answers included, quote, strong leadership with preemptive measures for work-from-home support, specific guidelines for sites and corporate testing as necessary, pre-shift quarantine periods for fly-in, fly-out employees and regular update meetings, and flexibility of organization to support employees was especially appreciated by respondents, as well as keeping employees safe and minimizing layoffs. One respondent who works for a mining supplier slash service provider praised the company for, quote, viewing staff as genuine people with real needs for flexibility, support, and culture building, in a major shift, making commitments to staff and following through, end quote. Another respondent who works for a supplier service provider said it had done well, quote, keeping its team intact, supporting employees and communicating in a clear, timely manner, end quote. So it wasn't all love and sunshine here. A few respondents could not pinpoint any strengths of their organizations, with one indicating that it was, quote, completely caught off guard by the pandemic and are now playing catch up. Another who works for a mining supplier service provider said, quote, the situation is quite chaotic, exclamation mark. The simplest task is overwhelmingly complicated due to regulation and procurement disruption. So general comments, but very, very interesting. Skipping down a bit, and again, I encourage you to read the whole thing if you're in the business. While organizations in the mining sector are generally seen as coping with the COVID-19 crisis well, there does seem to be room for improvement. And where things could be improved, the most common answer was related to communication with employees, clients, government, and communities. One engineering consultant said, quote, job security and loss of staff are likely the highest concerns in the consulting side of this industry. Short-term plans have been put in place and acted on. However, the uncertainty over long-term impacts requires additional communication to staff. Others indicated health and safety protocols and testing could be improved. And one quote said, faster implementation and and reaction to changing government policies and those of equipment suppliers, contractors, etc. as the COVID situation evolves. And that was a junior precious metals executive with assets in Mexico. And some people said, seven people said that technically uh, companies were a little slow to adapt. Uh, Quote, we could do more on adopting digital strategies and technology to be able to walk along with our mining customers in the next decade. (laughs) So, yeah, the perennial issue with the mining industry, I mean, the stereotype is that it's a little behind the times at times, and we have not uh, moved beyond that criticism in this survey. It looks like that persists. And so how are organizations responding to the downturn? So how are they dealing with basically uh, the business challenge? And 59% have reduced their capital expenditures. About a third of respondents said their organizations have also reduced their headcount. That was 35%. And they have also reduced salaries. 31% of companies have done that. Some have reduced or eliminated exploration programs. That's a third at 34%. And some companies have also targeted contractor costs, 33%, and supplier costs, 22%. The cutbacks have trickled down to shareholders with 13.8% indicating their organization has cut or eliminated their dividends, and 5% indicating that their share buybacks have been reduced. 
or eliminated. And finally, jurisdiction. People have had different experiences in different jurisdictions. Here's just a quick little quote. While most respondents said the jurisdictional response to COVID-19 would not affect where they will do business in the future, others have had negative experiences that may shape their choices differently in the future, including one precious metals junior with assets in Canada and the U.S. who said they made it difficult to get people in, and now we are facing contractors who now cannot do the work. Again, Eric Buckland brings this up in his upcoming interview. So we're really getting a comprehensive view of the industry today. And in South America, one individual was saying there are regular, new, and at times contradictory, nonsensical regulations and other times sometimes soft rules, the application of which are hard to define. Government is overwhelmed and reacts with knee-jerk responses. And another person said, quote, the Yukon, Alaska, and Nevada have done well. Exploration work is busy and moving along somewhat slower than previous years. And that was a someone from a supplier slash service company. In the Northwest Territories and Nunavut, it feels like a complete lockdown. Unless you had a large advanced project or active mine, there is no ability to run a program. And an executive from a Diamond Junior said, quote, we cannot have access to the project areas in a cost-effective way as there are quarantines required, so we cannot raise funds to complete work. So read the whole thing at northernminer.com. It is our current headline and... Just a great original piece of work from the Northern Miner and Canadian Mining Journal. Thank you, Alicia, for writing that up. Continuing on, well, we had BHP on last episode, and we also have been following the Rio Tinto story very closely, so I just wanted to touch on this. BHP, who also does a lot of work in Australia, is now telling people, uh, particularly uh, Aboriginal groups, that if they have a issue with BHP destroying their cultural heritage sites to please tell BHP, uh, voice your concerns, because the problem is, is Australia has laws that allow them to do this. I mean, I was thinking to myself, I think these companies should have archaeologists on staff. I'm not saying the small or the mid-tier, but if you're BHP or you are Rio Tinto, you can have an archaeologist who can tell you so that you can get an expert opinion on what it is you're maybe destroying. Because you obviously should know, one, if you are destroying something, and two, what it is you're destroying and the significance of that. Because it doesn't sound like Rio Tinto had that previously. So it might help, you know, to get a archaeologist, hire an archaeologist. Maybe they have, but I don't see any VP of archaeology or senior archaeologist at BHP or Rio Tinto. Just a suggestion from over here, because ultimately what you're looking for, BHP, is to be more knowledgeable, as well as Rio Tinto. You want to be more knowledgeable on these things, and that's just for everybody's benefit. So let's see what BHP is saying. This is from Cecilia Jamazmi, mining.com. BHP has told Australian Aboriginal groups to freely speak their mind about the way it manages cultural heritage as the miner readies to appear before a federal inquiry following Rio Tinto's destruction of two 46,000-year-old sacred shelters. Both companies have been criticized for having gag clauses in land agreements preventing traditional owners from publicly objecting to developments. 
And BHP said in a statement, quote, BHP has confirmed to traditional owners that it does not regard any term of its agreements with them as preventing them from making public statements about cultural heritage concerns. So they're basically saying, ignore the gag order on whatever deals we've made with you. We want to hear from you. So they're getting out front. BHP, they're getting the message that, and they're quite smart at what they're doing as far as I'm can see here, they're getting out front of the messaging. And the quote continues, if any provision in BHP's agreements can be regarded as having this effect, then BHP will not enforce that clause. So forget about the gag clause. We want to hear from you. And the Melbourne-based miner also noted it had, quote, strong existing internal processes to ensure that if new information arises that changes the heritage significance of a site, that it is taken into account in decisions relating to the place. I mean, back to, so did they hire an archaeologist? Maybe they feel they don't need to, and maybe they have. I don't know. So Australia's parliament is on a tear here. And finally, before we move to the other BHP article, we have Warren Ench, the chair of the Joint Standing Committee of Northern Australia's public hearings into the heritage site destruction, and he said last week, quote, the destruction at Jukin Gorge has highlighted the fact that despite the best of intentions, indigenous heritage areas lack adequate protection. And BHP also commented on Jukin Gorge and they said, quote, we recognize that what was lost at Jukin Gorge is not only a loss of a site of deep and unique living cultural heritage, but also a loss of trust, not just for the company involved, but with impacts for the entire resource industry. Now, Let's just see if there's anything else in this other article. We have an article that was written the following day by Cecilia Jamasmi. BHP acknowledged on Thursday, so BHP acknowledged that it was aware of Australian Aboriginal groups' concerns about the future of dozens of heritage sites before it sought and obtained approval to destroy them as part of a $3.4 billion expansion of its South Flank Iron Ore project. Now, the timing is fascinating. They obtained approval from the Western Australian government on May 29th. That was just five days after Rio destroyed the Jukin Gorge caves. So this raises questions, not legal questions, because it's all legal, right? This all comes down to moral questions and corporate governance questions. Who's running these companies? Five days after... The Jukin Gorge site was destroyed. They're out trying to get permits on other things they can destroy. Now, we don't know the deeper context here. So that previous article was maybe BHP trying to get ahead of this further revelation that came out in the inquiry from the sounds of it. The world's largest miner told the inquiry that representatives of the Benjima traditional owners, quote, raised concerns in the field, end quote, ahead of the Section 18 application last October. And BHP also said that landowners wrote to authorities in April saying they were opposed to the disruption of the archaeological site. So this is before Jukin Gorge. Now, the famous Section 18 of Western Australia's Aboriginal Heritage Act legalizes the destruction of Aboriginal sites as traditional owners are not able to object to ministerial decisions made under the legal clause. The state's Aboriginal Affairs Minister, Ben Wyatt, has since launched a review of the legislation. So the fallout continues. And now BHP's head of Indigenous Engagement, Libby Ferrari, told the Senate, we cannot get this wrong and we are committed to doing anything we can to achieve that. And BHP also vowed to not act on any of the permissions that they've received, quote, without further extensive consultations with traditional owners. So I think BHP 
has got the message and saw what happened to Rio Tinto and the outrage. And so they have halted all work that might involve heritage sites in Australia. And finally, we're just going to touch on a few headlines because we're going long here again. A Chilean court has ordered, quote, total and definitive closure of Barracks Pascualama. Now, Pascualama is on the border between Argentina and Chile. And from my impression, you know, I've been working at the Northern Miner for since 2012. It's been controversial the entire time. And it sounds like it's just a mountain of gold and silver. So it's rich. And so there's a lot at stake here, but they have had issues with their ESG, particularly the environmental. Now, a Chilean environmental court has put the final nail in the coffin, also by Cecilia Jamazmi, for Barrick Gold's giant Pascualama gold silver project. The court dismissed late on Thursday a legal challenge from the company to a 2018 ruling. At the time, Chile's Environmental Protection Agency ordered the total and definitive closure of the project. And this was the issue. The tribute's president, Mauricio Ovidio, confirmed three of the five main charges against Barrick outlined in the Environmental Authority's original ruling includes the fact that the Canadian miner failed to properly monitor glaciers surrounding the project. It also says Barrick's activities negatively affected the water quality of the nearby Estreco River. Sort of, that could mean anything. I mean, you could have a very tiny amount of difference or you could have uh, total pollution of a river. So it's a little vague. In addition... The judge ruled the gold giant used an unauthorized methodology for calculating water quality levels, which is less detailed and strict than the one required in Chile. And the court also imposed a $9 million fine on Barrick. And Barrick is not appealing the court's decision. The executive director for Chile and Argentina, Marcelo Alvarez, and it looks like he's with Barrick, said that Pascualama remains an important project. And they're trying to put a good spin on it. Quote, Barrick is a very different company since its merger with Rangold. And we now have a strong focus on establishing good relations with the communities and authorities. So that's the latest on Barrick's Pascualama. Sounds like their new strategy is to not try and fight to keep the mine, but let the government come to you once it needs money. And, hey, can we open this mine up? That's my take. That's the new strategy. And finally, Argentina has tightened their currency controls to, to demand to dampen demand for the greenback or for the U.S. dollars by Trish Saywell, Northern Miner Editor-in-Chief. Argentina's decision this week to expand restrictions on foreign exchange to protect its dollar reserves is largely due to the coronavirus pandemic's impact on the country's already overburdened economy. Waldo Perez, President and Chief Executive of Neolithium, told the Northern Miner. And we have a quote that the pandemic has had a very important role to play in this policy move. They are temporary measures. And these measures, announced on September 15th, include a 35% tax on dollar purchases by retail savers and on credit card purchases. 35%. So this is how it's done (laughs) in Argentina. When you don't want people to buy dollars, you put a 35% tax on buying dollars. This will be on top of the previous 30% solidarity tax. Restrictions limiting people to buying no more than U.S. $200 a month remain in place. And Bloomberg, citing data from Argentina's central bank, reported that almost 4 million people, nearly 10% of the country's population, purchased U.S. dollars in July as the peso has lost value. 
And meanwhile, Argentina's economy minister, Martin Guzman, said on September 13th that the country plans to ask for a delay in repaying the IMF until 2024. It is currently trying to renegotiate a $44 billion financing arrangement it has with the fund. So, you know, same old story in Argentina. Hopefully they get things sorted out at a certain point. I remember hearing this interview with someone, and they're talking about how in 1900, Argentina was like one of the top five powers in the world. You might want to double check that, but that's just, uh, that's something I've heard. And it's quite interesting. So, and a couple of quick headlines I'm just going to touch on. Uh, Mountain Province resumes diamond sales in Antwerp. So they've had a decent diamond sale there. So they're back in business there. And CIBC is predicting $32 silver and $2,300 gold in 2021. So their forecasts are rising. And let's just look at their long-term price. Because remember BMO from last week was something like $1,400 gold. And it looks like CIBC is saying their long-term price forecast for gold is now $1,650 per ounce and $20 per ounce for silver. And they base that on global macro uncertainty and investor demand for currency diversification. So with that, let's turn to metal prices and see what's going down. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on September 22nd, the first day of fall, gold is trading at $1,901.89. That is $66 lower than last week. So a significant pullback for gold. And silver is trading at $24.07 per ounce. That is $3.38 lower than last week. Big pullback in silver. Platinum is trading at $883.53 per ounce. That is $82 lower than last week's quote. And palladium is trading at $2,271.94 per ounce. And that is $69 lower than last week's quote. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.10 per pound, three cents higher than last week. Aluminum is unchanged at 79 cents per pound. Lead is a penny higher at 86 cents per pound. And nickel is a penny lower at $6.76 per pound. Tin is 13 cents higher at $8.24 per pound. Cobalt is also higher, finally breaks out of its really tight trading range. It's at $15.41 per pound, which is 44 cents higher than last week. And zinc is at $1.14 per pound. That is four cents higher, and it is going strong. So with that, it looks like precious metals pull back, industrial metals... Stay steady, with copper showing a lot of strength at $3.10 per pound. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have 
Eric Buckland, Senior Client Manager at Lincoln Strategic, and Eric specializes in high-priority, high-impact, and high-visibility roles in corporate and mine operation environments. So I love having Eric on the show because it gets us that, what I want to call, it's not quantitative data, but it's really excellent qualitative anecdotal data on what's actually going on in the industry when hiring is just such a great indicator of that. And Eric says it's booming. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to him and I will see you on the other side. So joining us once again, I'm happy to welcome back Senior Client Director for Global Mining Recruitment at Lincoln Strategic, Eric Buckland. Eric, welcome back to the podcast. Good, good to be back, Adrian. We spoke before the pandemic and wow, different times now. Indeed. It's amazing how normal everything seems. And uh, so how are things with you over in Toronto? How's business? How's everything going? Well, certainly business is is doing well. We have a commodities boom right now that's, that's starting. Certainly, if you look at that from just a, a stock perspective, most uh, analysts of mining stocks are, are predicting increases them in, in the prices. We've seen the Bank of America come out with $3,000 gold. It's tough to find an article that say that the, the prices are going to go down. So that's been certainly good for attracting capital to our business, mines opening up, mines getting capital to increase your longevity, increase exploration. So that's good in one sense for our industry and the fact that we now have capital and people recognize our industry and want to want to help uh, help us out. On the other side of that, it's been a very much a challenging time with lockdown borders and quarantine issues, health issues at mines and getting the rocks out of the ground to turn them into money. So you're focused on recruitment. How are things going? I mean, you're right. Like metals have really recovered really well since March. And there has been a lot of, I guess you could call it excitement in the commodity sector. And as you say, a lot of the forecasting tends to be calling for higher prices, not lower prices. How has that affected your recruitment? Is it hard to find people? Sure. Well, Adrian, it's, it was hard to find people before the pandemic. Now we've added the issues of closed down borders. And also a, a new factor or, or up and coming factor is the push for more uh, U.S. companies and a shortening in the permit time used to take seven years. The Trump administration has said, let's let's put that down to three years or try and fast track some of these. Uh, you got China controlling four fifths of the global mine supply of rare earths. And the pandemic really showed that the U.S. wanting to get a supply chain back. I mean, who, who would think that the, the Pentagon would be supplying capital for mining companies? That, that's a strange thing. MP Materials out in uh, California has a deal with them to produce some of these. It's great that that's coming back to the U.S. I think you need a strong industry like that, especially in a populous country. But there's only 579,000 estimated workers in the U.S. in mining. That's the population of Wyoming. The country has 328 million people. Canada employs more people in mining than the U.S. does. Yeah. So there's a big, big push on, and the capital markets want this. 
So I'm seeing more interest in, I mean, we are a global firm, but a lot of U.S. clients have called me and said, hey, we need this position or that position. So it's it's nice to see that, but it's tough to get the get the people in. Yeah. And is the toughness really about getting people actually in the country? Like maybe you have someone in Canada that might be interested to work in California, move beautiful California, and you just can't get them there. Is that what you're running into? That's a significant challenge. I like the idea of buy America, hire America, hire nationals first. That's definitely should be the mantra and is the mantra of many countries. It's a great idea. But if you don't have your local population that is there and capable, where do you get people from? And if you put the restrictions, I, I can't get a person across the border unless if I'm lucky, they have at least 10 years experience plus a university degree. And that doesn't necessarily work for people that are on the production side or, you know, right. my managers or, you know, open pit, you know, asset managers. They don't have a university degree. They have a, a trades degree or something else a lot of times. So without that, it's, it's, it's hard to get them across. So it's definitely a, a challenging time in the industry that was already constricted for employees. Plus, we're looking down the barrel of a gun of, of huge retirement. 25% of the workforce, it's predicted, is going to retire in the next 10 years. There's not a supply that's, that's coming up. So it's, it's a lot of that. Automation can help with that. And I think it has. And we've seen that come up in some of the mines. But that's a 25% of the workforce. That's a lot. So is a lot of the demand that you're seeing an increase in demand from the U.S. relative to what you might traditionally get from Canada? Like, so are you seeing higher demand out of the U.S. than normal? Yes, definitely a higher demand for talent out of the U.S. And it's almost robbing Peter to pay Paul in the U.S. U.S. was very used to hunting from other countries, be it U.S. or, or South America or, or Canada especially, and it was attractive. Now with a political climate, it's not as attractive for some to, to work there. And it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's very difficult to get people across the board unless they have very specific um, qualifications to, to get them in. So but that's, that's making it a challenge. Uh, but I welcome the fact that, that you know, our, our powerful neighbor is ramping up you know, a domestic supply of mining and mining projects and, and walking them in. Uh, it's it's uh, really is an economy that is critical all the way from your, your fighter jets to your wind turbines to clean energy. All starts with mining. And speaking of that, you've kind of emphasized the rare earth component. Are you seeing a lot of demand from the rare earth side? Like we also have that uh, plant, which I'm sure you heard is going to be built in Saskatchewan in Saskatoon, where I'm from. Are you seeing a larger demand for rare earths or is it just across the board? I would say uh, across the board, although rare earths tends to get uh, get the money first because people can, if we, as we move to more of a technology, clean energy, that's, that takes a lot of the, the rare earths. Tesla having their, the cobalt in them. Tesla saying we want to secure a domestic supply of either cobalt or nickel and how that has some spike boom in certain companies. I won't say which ones they are, but they uh, they have 
you know, they, their stock price all of a sudden increases because they can do it and do it cleanly. And Canada has a nice reputation of, of good, clean, historical, reliable mining. And if they get picked up by, by certain large companies in the U.S. because there isn't a domestic supply, then that's, that's a benefit for, for both. That's very interesting. And what are you seeing in Canada overall? Again, you're in job recruitment for mining. You're recruiting miners. What are you seeing from... Uh, is business uh, doing well in Canada? Or is business better than normal? Is it worse? Uh, what are you seeing there? Business is better than normal in Canada. I think what I'm seeing is it's difficult even to move from province to province. So, for example, a CEO search that I'm doing right now, one of the reasons why I'm doing it is because the mines in the East Coast, he's in BC, is where the corporate office is, and he has to quarantine every time he goes to the mine or back to BC. How do you quarantine? How do you run a company when you can't even leave your home? Is that to visit the mine site or just that's not to cross the provincial border, that is to actually go to the mine, correct? To, to, no, to actually cross the East Coast, from my understanding is has very specific lockdowns, wow. two week lockdowns if you're going province to province. If you're in the US and you're going across, you're, you're fine. So that's different jurisdictions, different rules. Even navigating those through are, are, are tough. So even if we can't get you across the border with your with your great degree and your years of experience, you're never sure until you get there. <laughs> you know, it's pretty interesting. Like I'm in Europe, as you know, and I have to say when I look at Canada's restrictions and I'm kind of all for, I thought they didn't lock things down soon enough. And I thought they waited too long just globally. I felt there was uh, way too much time wasted in February when it was clear that this was going to become a thing. That being said, when I look at Canada, I'm always kind of surprised at how strict things are. Like it is quite strict in Canada. Uh, Germany, it's pretty, I don't want to say it's lax, but it, I mean, that is the word that comes to mind. Like you wear your mask in the stores, basically indoors, and that's about it. But every time I open the Canadian news, it seems it's remarkably strict how it seems to me. I, I don't find it that strict. I think our mining companies have really adapted well to keep the lights on, keep the production going. It had been difficult or has been difficult to get uh, you know people in the cage down down to the rock face but i mean i think we've adapted well we're a pretty compliant society we wear our masks in the stores but um overall i think not too bad not too, not too bad but pretty compliant society here overall i think okay but but I, again it just depends on which which province you're in even what country you're in uh, everybody's got different rules so yeah, that's right. Keep and, your mask in your pocket at all times. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So tell me, as far as uh, the kinds of people that are being hired, are you seeing any patterns or trends there? Is it more executive types? Is it across the board? Are you seeing more demand for the, the production people? What are you seeing there? Well, Lincoln Street, we're a pretty pretty large firm in terms of our mining group, but we only do uh Chief engineers and above would be our main bailiwick of, of work. So I, I really can't comment on the, the lower end positions, be it the, the truck driver or the unskilled trades or that type of thing. I, yeah, I don't have a good read on that. But mm -hmm. certainly for the, for the skilled trade, the engineering types, the management types, it's definitely full on. I think you're, if, you're, if you're not working in the industry, you're 
not working by choice because there's seems to be lots of lots of jobs out there for you. Could we say it's booming the mining uh, job market? Yes, yes, I would definitely say that it's a it's a booming time and it's going to get more so. So we're happy to be welcomed back. Production is we're getting the the the, the capital attention. Uh, the prices are up, so certainly more of a, a demand to to take uh, rocks out of the ground, but you need the people to do it, and they're in short supply. Interesting. So from the company perspective, like let's say I'm a mining company and I want to hire some people, what should I be looking for? What what is there anything special that I should be looking for when I bring on new staff to my company? I think we want to look at there's a certain you can't have a finance oriented done that all their life. They're probably not be going to going to become a mind manager. Get that. So we got to look at the skill set. But once you get sort of the skill set figured out, okay, this is what the person will do. You only get so many people that can do that skill set. Okay, this is what I want to hire the person on skill. What we want to look at is fit. Is the person going to fit within your organization? Because then you can create that magic. And how do you measure fit? That's a tough thing because we tend to look at, oh, the person must be successful because they've been a, um, you know, a, a mine manager at one of the big name com- companies. Therefore, they'll be a great general manager at my smaller company. Maybe not. Maybe your smaller company is, they're not used to wearing that many hats. Maybe they're, they're used to looking down the hallway and finding the solution. Maybe they're just not that nimble. So that's not something that can be met. The, the, the resume looks great. We have an adage in our industry is that, uh, well, I, I hired your resume, but I got you. So you got to think about, about how do you measure fit and how do you quantify fit for your particular organization? Because there's only so many people that can do the job. Finding the people that can do the job is half of it. The other half is measuring fit. And on that point, so let's say I can't find exactly who I'm looking for. How far should I Am I, should I be willing to deviate from, say, some very specialist type role? Do I have a lot of leeway there in terms of can I train people on the job or should I stick with people and wait it out to get the right people? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, the challenge is waiting it out is that how long can you wait and how specialty is that skill? If you're waiting for the right, you know, the exact perfect ventilation engineer to come around, well, you might not have a mind left to be have them come to because you're not going to pass uh, health and safety guidelines because you're not having enough clean air down in your mind. I think that more and more times you'll be looking to consulting firms. More younger generations tend to want to be inspired by their work and they get more inspiration when they can work for multiple companies and try things out. And, well, I, I like this, but I only sort of try before they buy things. So consulting companies may be something that you have to look at while you're searching for that that needle in the haystack. And tell me, are you seeing particular roles that are more popularly in demand? Like you're mentioning the ventilation shaft engineer or manager. Are you seeing certain roles which are just impossible to fill or which are getting a ton of demand relative to others. Let's say you're a student, you're in geology and you're trying to figure out where am I going to get the most bang for my buck? And I want to get the, it's like being an AI PhD, you know? So what jobs are most in demand right now? I think anything on the uh, environmental, social and governance, that's a big deal right now. And the reason for that is that investors are looking to really not have issues. 
we saw happens with, with, with tailings accidents and how those dog our industry. Social licensing is an important part. And that's, a, people say, renewable license. Uh, uh, you don't get the certificate for it, but you, uh, you, you might have it renewed every day. So social licensing is important. So we're seeing if you're going to get capital investments, you're going to need to have those environmental issues in check social issues in check and governance issues in check in terms of how you're spending the money in order to attract capital dollars. So we're seeing a, a interesting, I would say that is the, the new hot vocation for our, our industry where, where it's always been there, but it's getting much more attention now. That is so interesting. So yeah, the mining mantra of 2020 ESG continues here. And so I'm wondering, like, would that even be a geology specialist? Or is that like, is that like an English major? You, you know what I mean? Like, ESG, or is that a lawyer? Uh, are you guys still using geologists to fill those kind of roles? Or do you go into completely other areas? Uh, geology in terms of tailings, uh, we just did a, a specific uh, hire for a large fund in Canada, I won't say which one, but they had made a big investment in a mine in BC that was a difficult a difficult mine uh, using uh, block caving and they had recognized a, a, a tailings uh, concern for the future and we hired a very specific uh, person that had geology background but then became a tailings specialist to help them through uh, what you know, make sure that it's that it's going to be all right and it's going to not create issues and that uh, just to, to keep a monitor of the situation. It is geology, but then it morphs into a specialty, be it social government, social licensing. How do you turn the person that is a protester against your mind into an advocate for your mind? Client in, in Colorado with, uh, you know, Colorado is, is big with, with water issues. Mining and water typically before didn't mix, but they do now. And how can we work together to have these done? So you need somebody that can really be an advocate and keep the people informed about how your, your mine is going to be a positive impact, not just take and leave. Right. And to do that credibly, it's almost like you need a geology degree and an English degree. <laughs> to, that's like kind of like your perfect mix. Extremely technical and high social skills. No, no, I think that, that might be too different. Too different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that might be too much to ask, but it, it's yeah. nice to dream, Eric. It's nice to yeah, dream. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so tell me, so as we wrap up, uh, is there anything else uh, that we're missing here uh, that you're seeing that we should talk about? Any parting thought? Well, I think just a warning for the, the audience is that uh, as industries boom and, and bust, hopefully we, we are much more level uh, of, of, of troughs and heights and valleys on, on this cycle. Be aware of the uh, the non-specialists. I often come across other recruiters and, oh yeah, I'm, I'm doing a mining search and then I'm doing a banking search and then I'm doing a, a uh, recruitment for somebody in manufacturing. I think in mining, you really have to, we have our own language. We have our, you know, we know where people are. Hire the specialists. That's Work with a specialist. If you're, if you're looking for a different job or changing career, work with a specialist. And if you're looking to hire somebody, work with a specialist. Uh, an old competitor of mine now does mining and searches for nonprofit. I can't think of two diverse industries. How can you be a specialist doing that? That would I would I would warn your audience to be be aware and trust the specialist. Okay, and on that point, so if people, let's say I need people for my mind, how, how would people get a hold of you? What's the best way? Uh, where are you guys located online? 
Absolutely. Located online at uh, LinkedInStrategic.com. Also, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, my All my contact information is there. Uh, it is my contact to my cell phone, so you can reach me anytime. Phone number is 416-854-8468. I welcome any comments on what you've heard today, what your audience has heard. And if you want to phone up and say I'm wrong, happy to hear that. Hopefully people phone up and say I'm right. Great. Well, thank you once again, Eric, for bringing in what a, a unique perspective for this podcast, which is the, the hiring area and just uh, job recruitment and placement. It's a very interesting just to get that anecdotal data on what is actually going on out there. So thank you once again for joining us, and we look forward to having you back on a future program. Absolutely. Looking forward to it, Adrian. If uh, we can keep more people in our, our industry... Everybody wins. I'm all for it. Agreed. Okay. Thanks, Eric. And we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Adrian. And that wraps up another edition of the Northern Miner podcast. I hope you like this granular, it's the qualitative version of high frequency data, high frequency anecdotal data. Feel free to share it with anyone you know in the industry or outside of it and with students of course who may really benefit from what eric had to say with that thanks again for listening leave us a review on the apple podcast directory and until next week take care